Plural? Does the budget stretch to that? <laughs> I see what you did there, <laughs> because we don't... Here's one of them. Hello, everyone. Hello, Simon. You all right? Yes, thanks. Apart from this bad back, which means I can't move anywhere. Uh, why did he say it like that? I think it's dramatic effect. Simon, do you have our other guest with you? I'll just get him. Hang on. Uh, I thought he had a bad back and couldn't move. Uh, what other guest? Here he is. Excellent. I said that because our guest is a... A Cyberman. Oh, this is going to be a classic episode. A Cyberman wearing a hoodie. And uh, quite a lot like the one Simon had on. Ah, you spotted that. I am wearing an identical hoodie as the human Simon. This is for logical reasons that I uh, can't go into right now. Well, fair enough. But where's Simon now? I'll go and get him. Hang on. Oh, now he's gone. Hello, sorry, just had to, uh, uh, ow, my back. Look, this is all a bit contrived, don't you think? Simon, why were you pretending to be a Cyberman? Wait, what? I'm right, aren't I? This elaborate plan of his must have been conceived for some reason. Uh, Richard told me to. All right. It doesn't work on Zoom, but listeners will think we've got two guests and one of them's a classic monster. Like, we've pushed the boat out. Yeah, that's even more contrived. Uh, hang on, you mean, you mean it's it's not a real Cyberman? Sorry, Giles. Richard said if I doubled up roles, I'd get twice the fee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it is true. H- how, how much is the fee? Well, we, we don't actually pay, but you've got a book out. I thought you'd welcome the exposure. You're a monster. Yeah, all right. Now that is a twist. Welcome to the podcast where we take something old... A Doctor Who story from the original series, compare it with something new, one from the new series, and add something borrowed, the idea for the sketch, to make Something Who. Hello, I'm Richard, and we're back with Something Who podcast episode 83, where this time we're looking at two stories that introduce new companions. We'll look at First Doctor story The Rescue from season two, And after that, we'll examine the 11th Doctor's debut in the 11th hour from Series 5. And with us this time, we have writer Simon Guerrier, well known for writing works of both fiction and non-fiction, and making contributions to the Doctor Who DVD and Blu-ray ranges. And currently, he's the author of David Whittaker in an exciting adventure with television, which tells the little-known story of the man who was Doctor Who's first story editor, and also a prolific writer of quality stories from the show's first decade. Simon, hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's very exciting. Well, it's exciting for all of us, I think. Yeah. We've got, we've got, I think we've got a good, a good choice of subject matter in honour of your um, appearance here, so that's good. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's thrilling. I'd never really thought about The Rescue and The Eleventh Hour, but actually sitting and watching them together, I've spotted all sorts of things that kind of cross between them. Um, so yeah, yeah, really interesting thing to do. Fantastic. We've also got science and astronomy writer Giles. Evening. It's been a while. Yeah, it has. Yeah. And we've also got our resident storyteller, Paul. Yes, our, our resident storyteller. Yes. Hello. Nice to meet you all again. <laughs> it's like, yeah. like, the, I mean, like the tavern, a virtual tavern in here. Sorry, that, that makes it sound very cliquey, doesn't it? To cut that out. We don't want the listeners thinking we're all just... <laughs> Some sort of old boys network. Oh god, I'm yeah, really digging or, a pit or, here that I didn't need to. Yeah, don't don't let them in on that, because that's a secret. <laughs> yeah. For for posh guardian readers who anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> We're all off to the secret screen of your power of the Daleks later. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm surrounded by professional writers. Anyway, look, we've not been around for a while and it's all kicked off in our absence. It seems to me that RTD has finally made good on Stephen Moffat's 50th anniversary promise of more Doctor Who than ever before. Mm. 
all on, all on the iPlayer. Isn't it exciting that we could do our homework on iPlayer? I thought <laughs> that there was a particular thrill of going, oh, I can just look that up. It's right there in front of me. Um, mm. I don't even I don't ha- even have to reach over to the shelf to take down a DVD. <laughs> mm. It definitely saved me some faffing around because we've been having our living room done over. All the AV equipment and stuff is currently cluttering up my study, so I've, um, I've not had enough room to... So I've had to have gone and plugged everything in again from scratch and then found the DVD. The one thing that I that surprised me, I didn't see this coming is that not only have there been no missing episodes for the 60th anniversary, but we've actually gone and lost four other ones. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. There, 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 there will always be 101 missing episodes on the iPlayer. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Well, that's all we need to say about that, isn't it? I'm, I'm glad that you can still make light of it. There's nothing upsetting about this situation at all. It's... It's just, it's just wonderful. It's so, it's so humorous. Oh, I, I remember watching UK Gold where they didn't show Dalek stories. They just skipped those oh, yes, ones. Those were the days. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and then, and then they all came back in one big cache. So they just ran all the Dalek stories all the time. Um, yeah, it's, you know, I've, I've long lived with my disappointment in Doctor Who. It's fine. <laughs> Well, you know, we have still got them on our shelves, haven't we? If we can ever be bothered to... to uh, if we haven't lost the knack of reaching up to, to fetch them down with our own physical hands, <laughs> which will no doubt start, uh, uh, continue to atrophy the more we get used to everything being on iPlayer. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I think I can see an unearthly child now, but the only problem is if I, if I get it down off the shelf, it'll probably bring half of the other DVDs with it, so I think I'll leave it right now. Okay. And we're going to lose four more episodes at, um, on November 23rd, aren't we? suddenly they're cutting the dollars in half. Very clever. <laughs> but, you know, it's in full colour. Yeah, this is true. And we get both. That's not That's not taking away. No, it's no, adding. no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just the, um, the attitude of some people. Yeah. It's a bit like, oh. I'm looking forward to that. Of all the many things that are interesting about it, I'm keen to see what Mark Ayres has done with the music. Will it be a completely new score? Or do you think he, it will be inspired by the original atmospherics of Tristan Carey, but modernised. We shall see. Hmm. But I don't mind if it's just another score of Mark Ayres, because he's one of my favourites. Yeah, yeah, it's exciting. It, and it's it's just that idea that, that I mean, I spend my whole time engaging in Doctor Who in one form or another, you know, tr- trying to tell new stories that are based on it or, 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 or find things to say about it and features and stuff. And um, the kind of hope is that this version of the Daleks will kind of encourage people who'd never normally watch that story to kind of dig into it. I find that really exciting that, that that there's the potential for a whole new audience to come crash in on us and basically tell us that we've been getting it wrong all this time. I remember the excitement when Tomb of the Cybermen was found and came out on video and suddenly everybody could watch it and didn't just have to take the word of the people who'd seen it back in the 60s. And it kind of completely changed a lot of the the kind of narratives about about Doctor Who and what was a good story and what was a different story and kind of allowed people to have their own opinions. So yeah, I'm kind of hoping we'll see something similar to that. It's it's potentially very very exciting. Yeah. You can never have too many different gateways for people to get into the program, can you? I mean, the the Twitch thing the other year showed that some of the younger generation watched the real thing if you put it in a medium and a medium that they're familiar with. But this, so that's yeah, yeah. what worked for some people, and this will work for other people. People who like color, people who like speed, whatever, any anything that we anything we can use to get them in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, potentially very exciting. And is me talking like about it like it's only the young people that will be excited by a yeah. color zippy version of the Daleks. <laughs> of course, I will. I, I'm not getting any younger. I haven't got enough years left of me to watch the real thing. I agree. <laughs> Well, it's it's full circle for me because I, I mean I essentially became a fan reading that uh, David Whittaker novelisation of the of the story, mm. and then I, I saw episode two in the very early eighties in a, a cinema in Bradford, so that was very exciting as well. So yeah, all these years later, w- watching a colour version, yeah, it, it's it's one of the great stories. Mm. I was that at the Film and Television Museum, the, um... yeah, something like that. Yeah, yes, yeah, it was, it was called that was up there. Hmm. I was familiar with the, the 
Peter Cushing movie first before I read the book. So uh, I've seen mm. some people humorously saying a 75-minute colour version of the Daleks. Didn't Milton Sabotsky get there first? Or indeed, <laughs> David Whittaker. But while that's a very whimsical thing to point out, it, w- it might even be interesting to see if the, uh, you know, the edit of the story goes down similar routes. So many things mm. to look forward to. Yeah. Mm. Just with less Roy Castle. Talking of Mark, I had... Go on. <laughs> I have to say I went to, um, went to a very good event at the BFI on the weekend, which is part of Dick Fiddy's um, time travel season they're having there at the moment. We had an hour and a half of nerdy out about the TARDIS with Malcolm Thornton. And the, but the highlight of it was uh, Marquez coming on stage and getting his laptop out and spending about 20 minutes playing an audience of rapt Doctor Who fans various different TARDIS interior sound effects <laughs> from over the years. And I was thinking, this is about the, <laughs> the nerdiest thing. But um, everyone was absolutely enraptured. I never realised quite how different some of the sound effects were between the, um, the pilot and, and an earthly child as it aired, for instance. I thought you were going to say they brought a piano frame and, and a Yale key on stage or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> Did he still have his little beard? I didn't. I, I nearly didn't recognise Mark when I watched the Proms Gala music thing the other day. Yes, it? yeah. Oh, mm. Good, suits him. He did, yes. Mm. Yeah. This is a vital commentary we're getting into now, isn't it? I, I, <laughs> I, I guess we, we, should, we, should, we should probably actually do the thing we promised to do, which is to talk about the story. So, yes, indeed. So let's kick off then with The Rescue, written by David Whittaker and directed by Christopher Barry. I, I didn't see this until the late 90s on UK Gold. So, unfortunately for me, by the time I got to watch it, I, it was already 20 years after I'd read The Making of Doctor Who, which gave away the key plot <laughs> twist. <laughs> so, the problem was, it wasn't so much of a whodunit as a whydunit. Hmm. And I guess, I, I guess I'm interested... I mean, I don't know if any of you managed to, 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 to get there before you'd had the, the, the spoiler... But if you hadn't, I, I, I wonder what the experience would be like for someone who, who had. I can't tell you, but I'm going to reach behind me to my trusty Doctor Who programme guide and see what if it's given away in the summary, which I assume it was, mm. in which case the answer was at a very young age. <laughs> That's true. I probably would have picked it up from there. I would have first seen it in the, uh, the Venerable Rescue and the Romans VHS box set when that came out. Right. Because they combied. They did the two of them, two tapes in a chunky box. Because the novelisation was relatively late, wasn't it? Yes. Yes, it, it's. Uh, I, I made a note, it was January 1988. Yep. Ooh, OK, yes. And that glorious so late I, I golden era when Nigel Robinson started. Yeah, yes. I didn't read any of those, unfortunately. Mm. Oh, you missed out, mate. Simon? Yeah, I hadn't read the novelisation. I think... I must, it was either UK Gold or the VHS release that I first saw it on, and I don't think I knew. Ooh, wow. I certainly don't remember, because I didn't know a lot of these stories when I first watched them. Mm. And maybe I'd skim, you know, I had a copy of the programme guide and I'd skim through it and things, but I tended to read the ones I already knew. Yeah, so I don't don't remember knowing it. Yeah, very, very sensible approach. Sorry, go on. But I was going to say that the Christopher Barry's notes on an earlier draft of the script survive. And I've not seen the originals, but both Marcus Hearn and Alan Barnes have written about what's in them in Doctor Who magazine. Mm. And there seems to have been a point where Bennett wasn't Coquillian. Ooh. And Coquillian was an extra character. Ooh. And Christopher Barry's notes were kind of suggesting, you know, what what is motivating Coquillian? Why is he doing this? Is he just bad? And in... Mm. Working that out, they make him Bennett, mm. which I find quite interesting. interesting. And then the other... Wow. Go on. And I was going to say, the other thing I find really interesting is that the story was commissioned because they weren't quite sure what they were going to do after the original 52-episode run of Doctor Who at the end of that production yeah. block, which finishes with the Dalek invasion of Earth. So as I'm sure you know, the, the original plan was that they were going to introduce a new character to take over from Susan in that story. And having said goodbye to Susan, they'd then find this new character had stowed away in the TARDIS. Mm. But because they weren't sure what was going to happen next, Donald Bavistock, a bit like he did the year before with The Edge of Destruction, was kind of like, well, let's finish it with the, the Dalek invasion of Earth and then introduce the new character in a two-part story that follows it 
But also, at the time he was saying that, they weren't sure that Barbara and Ian were going to continue in the series. They, uh, uh, Jacqueline Hill and William Russell weren't contracted until the end of September 64. So the rescue was probably conceived to introduce a whole new family of characters, if need Ooh. be. Ah. Okay. Or it could have been, if Barbara had stayed on, it would have introduced two new characters. If Ian had stayed on, it would have introduced two new... So there's all of that, which I find uh-huh. quite... There's a kind of... I'm not sure when David Whittaker began writing, but certainly in conception, that must have been in the mix, which is why it's a passenger ship. There could have been any number of survivors, any mm. combination of survivors and Vicky to make that work. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and, and I, I guess also combining the characters of, of Bennett and Cochillian saved them £2.50 in the budget as well. Yeah, well, there's always that. <laughs> a, a gener- generally, it's, it's something that Big Finish picked up fairly early. The fewer characters you have, the more they all get to do and the better the characterization is. Mm. So, yeah, you can see that in, in just a it's, a... it's a quite a good story editing thing of just going, these two characters, if they're the same person, they're just a more interesting character. Mm. You get the opposite of that in The Enemy of the World, also written by David Whittaker, where they split out Astrid Ferrier and a character called Faria. Mm. And by dividing up the sort of plot function into two characters... I think they make Astrid a bit of a less interesting character because they, mm. Faria is the one who has the the sort of backstory with Salamander. Mm. Astrid, and Astrid losing that just makes her a bit less of a interesting character in the story. I I think it's a great discipline, don't you think, Simon? Writing for audio with that restriction on the number of characters you can have. I mean, it's a number of actors, and in theory, yeah. you can have them all doubling up. But if you you know, you soon learn that it's, it's much, makes for a much stronger story if your main five actors or whatever play one character each and you have as few people milling around in the background. Because on audio, you can't, <laughs> unless you give them more ridiculous accents, it's much harder to distinguish mm. once you go past a certain number of characters. But Whereas on television, you can have bit parts wandering in and out and people will, the visual memory being what it is, people will remember a, a character with a strong look, if, even if they only pop up mm. here and there and everywhere. Yeah, it's still difficult to establish somebody on screen so they're memorable. So generally, if you can have fewer, stronger characters, they'll be more memorable, I think. It's interesting just because it, it's a case where you look at the story and you think, well, that's the entire the entire mechanic of it. And that, that was the idea and they wrote the whole thing from there. And it turns out to be, hmm. you know, like a, a later thing that was then retrofitted into that's... it. And yet it feels like it's the entire... The entire gimmick of the story. That's two separate what-ifs that Simon's outlined to us. And I, either one of them makes the story less interesting and more commonplace, I think. If it's mm. not got that enormous twist, it's less interesting. If it's not got that um, claustrophobic atmosphere with tightly controlled number of characters. It makes me wonder. I'm fascinated by the idea that it was the director, Christopher Barry, who thought it needed a little something extra. And that two very experienced writers, David Whittaker and his script had a Dennis Spooner were perfectly happy with with the original idea, and it was the director. It also makes me wonder if that has any bearing on the thing I was going to say way back when Richard called it Who Done It, and I didn't mean to be pedantic because I know you didn't mean it literally. But of course, it isn't a Who Done It. It's almost like an inverse Who Done It. There is no mystery. We don't spend the fifty minutes wondering what's going on, who is Coquillian, what's we're perfectly happy to take things for granted, to take Bennett's story for granted, to take for granted that Coquillian is the villain he appears to be. And the twist, I, won't say, I don't mean it comes out of nowhere in a bad way, but it's, it's the opposite of a twist that we're, look, we're waiting for. It's not an explanation for mysterious events. It's an extra bit of business, an extra bit of fun, which takes the story up to another level. So it's fascinating, the thought that that might have come out of, hmm... Christopher Barry's note seems to be Coquillian in the early draft was just bad and he needed a bit more motivation and a bit of an explanation for what it is that's driving him. Mm. And one suggestion is that he he would want to take over the TARDIS and things. And I think by, by combining the characters, you just get, oh, it, you know, Bennett is trying to cover up a crime and that's what this is about. Yep. 
and that's and that's interestingly mundane isn't it that he's just a criminal and as the doctor says you and they they really big it up he's not just killed one or two people to cover up his crime he's almost destroyed entire committed genocide to cover up mm. his own crime which elevates him from a, a mundane criminal to uh, an unintentional you know super villain he's a very very evil man and he's trying to bump off Barbara as well, yeah. despite the fact that, that, you know, she has no bearing really on whether he's... I mean, I guess the more people that you bump off, the more danger you've got of revealing the fact that you're bumping people off when all, what he's done so far is get rid of all the people who knew that he had committed the murder. But, uh, you know, I, I mean, I guess maybe you just you just get into the... <clears throat> into You know, you can't stop yourself. I don't know. I'm, I, I've never been a serial well, killer, so I can't really... <laughs> Yeah, it's a common common problem once you start down that path. You just, you know, the more you have to kill more people to cover your tracks. You have to kill more people because you just, because it's just so much fun. But either way, once you pop, you can't stop. It's interesting in how many ways this story also has built in, uh, well, I don't know, defences against criticism you might have of it. This is un- completely unintentional, but the fact that... They're, they're, I imagine almost everyone who's ever watched it has, has thought, oh, Coquillian looks a bit rubbish. What a, another silly-looking Doctor Who monster, then it turns out to be a mask. Now, that's not deliberate. It's not being postmodern, but it's interesting that, it's, that it can be read that way. And also, uh, Bennett's plan is not as much overcomplicated, but it's a bit risky. He wouldn't really be able to fool anybody other than a, you know, a young girl. He only gets away with it because it's Vicky. And he's kind of, but you get the feeling that he's kind of extemporizing this plan as well. So it's all a bit, you know, provisional and he's making it up as he goes along. Yeah, he, he, he but he does, I think it's established that he, do, he does kill everybody else, everybody who, all the grown-ups who might be in a position to discover his plans. But he, and he, but he doesn't keep Vicky alive out of any noble sentiments. It's purely so that she can, because he thinks she's gullible and she'll back him up. Because if he's if, yeah. when the rescue ship arrives, he's the only one left. It's going to look a bit suspicious. So it's it's a really watertight story, really unusually for. <laughs> I was going to say unusually for this era. Why do I always have to damn everything with faint praise? Every story <laughs> in this era is amazing, but this is even better. I tell you what I like about about this was the um, the rapport of of the Doctor uh, Ian and Barbara at the kickoff. You know that they're. There's there's some really sort of warm scenes that are, and and they seem to be sort of playing it off each other really well. There's there's, an, there's even an, an a, you know attempt at humour, uh, <laughs> and I mean we have had we have had humour in 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 the first um, series, but it but not so much among the Tardis crew, I think. So, so well, yeah, they, I like that. They've they've also the cast have had six weeks holiday, and I think yes, yes. that's why the Doctor having had a nap is a sort of in joke because they're all quite well rested. Mm. <laughs> and and are all kind of coming to it with a bit of a spring in their step. Hmm. It's nicely done because it would have been very easy to start, I don't know, say with the way Res- Resurrection of the Daleks starts, with the Doctor looking miserable because we know Tegan's just left. So when we have start off light with that light banter, we think, oh, are they going to gloss over the Susan thing? That's not very that's not very good. Surely it would mean more to the Doctor than that. And then they they get us just when we've just when we're yeah. not expecting it. They kick us in the uh, in the in the fields. I've forgotten that this was Dennis Spooner. This is where Dennis Spooner does take over the script editor. Yeah, yeah. I had to look that up, and it, I did. It did strike me that even if you didn't know for sure, you could probably guess because, and maybe Simon could correct me if I'm wrong here, but it does feel more that opening scene feel more like Spooner than Whitaker. I'm not saying Whitaker couldn't write funny stuff, but the first season has not been known for scenes as light and breezy, and gi- and uh, Doctor's giggly as we get right from the off here yeah i mean it might be dennis spooner it might be rehearsals i wonder if it's david whittaker also attempting to kind of start again and and make things a bit more friendly because they've got a that there's such a full stop at the end of dalek invasion of earth that this gives you a chance to kind of reset the tone of the series but dennis spooner had been on doctor who for for a good few months shadowing David Whittaker and Whittaker had written probably two drafts of the scripts before he left at the end of October 1964 so there would have been a lot of collaboration between them and my suspicion is that Whittaker was there for the read-through of the first day of rehearsals and may have been around anyway anyway what I find 
what I found in researching all of this is it's very difficult to say exactly where one person one person's contribution stops and another starts because they yeah. took they talked about it at the time as being a very collaborative collegiate kind of way of working and it's actually very rare that anybody takes credit for any particular bit of a script or a line of dialogue or a, a thing so i i think rather than kind of going this is a dennis Booner story i think it, i think it, he was just in the mix and that's not to denigrate or to or to lessen his contribution but but i think it's a much more malleable kind of uh, uh, process then he comes in, it becomes funnier. I mean, there is comedy in Doctor Who. There's the, in, in the first year of Doctor Who, I think the Doctor's engagement to Kamika is is uh, amazingly funny. Yeah, yeah, all of that kind of stuff is is very, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's very lightly handled and, and Hartnell is clearly enjoying it all. Yes, thank you. Everything you say is right. But I'm going <laughs> to, at the very least... I don't believe that anybody other than, other than Spooner wrote the line where Barbara's line about the trembling stops and the doctor saying, oh, I'm so glad you're feeling <laughs> right. better. That's not. <laughs> but, um, That's, why does the doctor wake right. up feeling sticky? But sticky, uh, sticky. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, is it a leather chair? He, he shouldn't have had that, those toffees, I expect. <laughs> it is a trap. Textual analysts fall into all the time, isn't it? When you know how, who's worked on the script, you suddenly start saying, "Well, this clearly this story mm. element must be introduced by person X because that's the sort of thing they do." And this line is, when anybody's co-written something with somebody else, will know that a few years later you look back and you can't remember who wrote what, mm. and you often surprise yourself when you and and people who work closely together will adopt each other's stars if they're professionals mm. to make sure that the thing coheres rather than pulling against each other. Anyway. There are a couple of things where where the the characters are behaving a, a bit unusually. In you know, the, so the Doctor sends off Ian and Barbara to do a bit of exploring, and normally he's absolutely determined to be among them. Mm. And he just, oh, I'll just grab a bit more of a nap, even though I've just woken up from a nap. I've, I could do with a bit more of a nap. And then and then Ian is very unchivalrous <laughs> with Barbara. He just sort of nips off back to the TARDIS and leaves. Uh, Kakillian and, and and Barbara together, so that just seems a little bit. Yeah, I think I think in both those cases, so so the Doctor doesn't go back for a nap. What he it's does is cover, he goes. Isn't it? Yeah. He, he, it's cover to to check his theory that he's been here before. Right. Hmm. Yes. Okay. And so he's letting them go off and explore and do the thing that he would normally do, hmm. which yeah. is very. Now we take that for kind of granted that the doctor gets his companions to kind of ask questions about where they've arrived and that kind of stuff yes i i totally get what you mean about the awkwardness of ian leaving barbara behind i think that's a staging thing right yeah it's i think ian is assuming that barbara's right behind him and it's just it's just a bit awkward partly because you've got you know the the thing that cuts barbara's exit you know, that cuts that root off is Coquillian. And Coquillian, poor old uh, uh, Barrett, can't really see through the mask. Right. So he's a bit awkward on his feet. And he has those mm. very big clawed feet as well. And the yes. set is supposed to be a dark cavern and it's a sort of wall of polystyrene. And I think that's, uh, yeah, I, 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 you know, it's not, it's, it's a little awkward, but I don't think yeah. it's, I don't think the logic is at fault there. I think it's it's the slightly awkward staging of it. <laughs> when the Doctor gets back into the TARDIS and uh, he successfully falls in and Barbara into thinking that uh, he's not up to the job anymore, Ian's mime of the Doctor having gone a bit senile is um, is a little cruel, isn't it? I mean, we can laugh. But well, we? no, it's undercut because the doctor immediately pops, pops back up, pops up yeah. behind them, and says, "I get yeah. what you're saying." Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I, I'd forgotten how. It's sometimes since I've seen it, it's, I do enjoy this. So it's not, it's not, not something I've, I've not seen for for ages and ages. But I've forgotten how funny it was, and in some ways, there's a whole reset thing because the thing that I, I always remembered thinking about in terms of it being a reset and, and almost. To my mind, this is where I always think about the confrontation with Coquillian at the end as being that's where that's where the the doctor becomes 
the Doctor almost in terms of what we know, you know, how we know him from later. Because that that sort of you know, I loved that scene at the end, but I've forgotten that you know, you not only have that sort of dramatic. Okay, this is the Doctor going to show you know going to have a showdown with the villain, you know, and, and has is clearly two or three paces ahead of of the villain on various things. But you've also got that humour, and I was trying to think: uh, is this also because this is also you know he's got the advantages of having of having been to Dido before, so he's got that foreknowledge. I'm trying to think: have we had that in the series before now? Have we had a mm. reference to like the Doctor going to? I don't know. We've had references to past adventures. It's the trouble with watching things out of order, like we tend mm. to. You, you, if you're looking for firsts, and you know the. the development in the Doctor's character or the set of the program it's um I think what you tend to find is that a lot of things just a lot of things start earlier than you think they do but Mm. it might be it might be yeah it's the it's the first story where he arrives with some foreknowledge of the Mm. place because he's been there before yeah I mean you get you get it in the historical stories that he's read Mm. history and and things which gives him a bit of a grounding but this is his previous travels give him a give him an insight here i think there's also i mean you were talking about the the scene at the end but there's loads of sort of what i suspect are very purposeful scenes you know there's the scenes between the doctor and vicky that are very charming where he wins her over Hmm. there's the the sort of argument between barbara and vicky where they kind of have to reconcile things between themselves really i think ian's the one who doesn't get a great deal to do here you know that a lot of what the rescue's doing is is doing the kind of character stuff that we got in the the very first doctor who serial and certainly in that that sort of first 13 episode block where they're working out their relationships between each other and we get that in two episodes you know it's a really concise bit of uh but by the time vicky joins the tardis we know the kind of family unit has mm. cohered in yeah. the same way that it coheres by the end of the Brinker Disaster, episode 13. So, yeah, I, th- I think all of that is really interesting to watch. What I found really interesting watching it for this is that a lot of the beats of that, which is that Vicky is quite, what's the word? She's quite forthright. She doesn't warm to them immediately. She's resistant. The doctor starts talking to her about travelling in time and space and he doesn't she doesn't believe him and she's won over by this confrontation with the monster and also part of her fire is she's a bit of a tragic character she's an orphan that's all amy pond as well in the 11th hour (laughs) it's all the same kind of beats is Mm. the same which i would have never have made a connection to um otherwise that's good and this feels like also barbara and ian become it feels like also a moment where they become they're a lot more coupley and we obviously kind of expect that from the Romans onwards, but in this they're quite they're quite kind of touchy feely and very cozy together in a way that they haven't necessarily been in the past. I'm trying to think, and certainly the Reign of Terror was that the most recent one where they gave Barbara another love interest. So it feels like that sort of thing is cohering. Mm. It's interesting that they do. I was going to say fast forward. They do go to great lengths to make sure that the relationships. The solidify between these three just by the, the end of the two episodes because the next story we fast forward a month don't we and you might think mm, that's such yeah. a thing that a script editor might do a bad script editor might do to cheat so that by the time the roman starts that they're all pally and you could just skip over the development because as you said it took 13 episodes first time round they might think well we've got to cheat it here so it's, it's like a belt and braces approach they put that maybe they put that padding in, but they didn't need to because. Yeah, I think I think part of it is when the series began, those first thirteen episodes, our focus is on the four main characters. Once we get past that, our focus is on each new situation those characters come to, so they become much more. What's the word? Sort of established, kind of rigid in who they are. Mm. And although we can explore aspects of them, actually the kind of adventures are about the worlds they meet and the the characters they meet. So you stop getting, which you get quite a lot in those first 13 episodes, you stop getting episodes 
where there's nobody else but our four regulars. And so I think for a continuing series, we've kind of got to get over introducing Vicky and kind of go, this is it. And we're, we're, you know, nothing has changed. She's a different person, but basically we're carrying on. On we go. And that's kind of what those two episodes are doing. And if it was more difficult, if her arrival was more problematic, that would be a cue for the audience to resist the change. And we would be less welcoming to Vicky as, as viewers, which is lethal, basically. I think that there are subsequent companions where that becomes an issue. And you're kind of encouraging viewers to resist this handover. The the doctor warms to Vicky very quickly. I mean, it's within, you know, almost seconds, I suppose, of the two characters coming together that he's sitting down and exercising charm. So, yes. I, I, in fact, I wrote down a moment of charm. It's, you know, Pertwee-esque almost. You know, he's, he's, uh, turns it on full, full bore. It's it's lovely, and it's it's exactly it's doing exactly the same thing as Matt Smith with the apple with Amy Pond, yeah. kind of winning her over to this mad world that that he's part of, and yeah, I I do think it's rather deftly done. I think it it's also really well designed the 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 whole story. I I kind of felt like. You know, given that the the space he had to record in is you know barely bigger than the ground floor of a house, you know they've they somehow managed to get all of those sets in place. They've got a rather lovely model. They've got that fantastic shot early on where you've got Ian and Barbara on a ledge looking across to the model, and somehow that worked. Well, it, maybe there's inlay involved, but any, however they've done it, that somehow works. But and, and and indeed the way that the set of the rocket kind of marries up with the the model. I mean, the only thing the only thing I've got against it, and I think this is only to do with the amount of space they had, is it's kind of hard to conceive where all of the inhabitants of the passenger ship would have been from what we see. And you know, unless there are, I haven't, I didn't really think about it. Unless there's something else in the model that we don't see on the set. I I think there's a. What it does very well is, uh, I think Russell T. Davis has referred to it as vertical storytelling, which is where you hide the fact that a studio floor is all on one level. Ah, So yeah. you have the mountains and you have the view from the mountains looking down. You have the, the floor of the spaceship is not uh, horizontal. All You have a trapdoor that leads to a passage underground. So you have this sense of this kind of three-dimensional space that really sells it, I think. So many studio-bound stories look like they take place in a studio, and this does a really good job of hiding that. Mm, good point. And same with um, Sandy and the yeah the, the precipice of Marlpell. That bit, yeah. Again, but you've got the height and and I, I yeah personally I've got a soft spot for old Coquillian um, and that the design. I think it's quite. Yeah, quite effective, and and the fact you get it mirrored on the big mask, the big door, uh, not door thing, the the thing that produces the spikes. Yeah, that's that's interesting because Daphne Dare, the costume designer, told DWB that she didn't design Coquillian for the story; that it was something they had in stock, some sort of operatic oh. costume. Oh, okay. So a that may be why it looks like they've spent some money on it because mm-hmm. they didn't. Just, <laughs> it was just something that already existed. But also yeah. what that means is that Ray Cusick designing the sets kind of then took his cue from there. Yeah. I think, I think mm. if I'm right, aren't some of the designs drawn by Chris Thompson? They're in the Doctor Who, the early years. Mm. Chris Thompson, who went on to be the designer of Evil of the Daleks. Yeah. Uh, Del- but, yeah. Delving for our copies, I can see Richard and Richard excavating. He's he's got one to hand more easily than I have. I think I've got one here as well. <laughs> There's Coquillian, yeah. But but what that's doing is it, it is it means you've got costume and set design kind of collaborating mm. consciously, and you know we kind of tend to think of that as the sort of thing that Roger Murray Leach and Jim Atchison did in the early days of Tom Baker mm-hmm. to great effect, and that's going on here. And it re- I think it really works. Chris Thompson, you say? Yeah, is that yes, right? Yes, it, it's def- that's right. In, in the bottom corner there, yeah, of the the um, the, the door knocker thingy. Ah, yes. Yeah. Podcast gold, yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I'll just flick through the pages noisily. Holding up pictures, so that, from, a, um, <laughs> holding up pictures from a God help us forty-year-old book. <laughs> yeah. Well, still, still great. Yeah. But yeah. So, so you, it, it it stands up your story anyway. So I'm mm. good. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> I have I have studied that book at great length over the last year, <laughs> gleaning everything yeah. I possibly can from it. I was going to say, yeah. just in regard to the storytelling mechanics and so on, the fact that this thing about the that the Doctor knows, and it's it's neat because the, because the Doctor knows and has the experience of having been on Dido before, he can then be our route into the mystery of, okay, so it, it gives us some insight into the people of Dido, because otherwise if you've only got Coquillian as the representative, how would you know that there was a mystery about why they'd why they had changed and that the Doctor's impression yep. of them is that they're peace-loving people and so Coquillian is something out of the ordinary. It's, if, you're gonna, if you want to tell that sort of story, it's a clever, clever innovation to have the Doctor um, know that. I also noticed that, because Barbara says, oh, describes the Doctor as being from a different age, a different planet altogether, is that possibly the first confirmation that the Doctor's an alien? Or the middle it's from Barbara's point of view rather than out of his mouth i think it's the f- uh, no because susan talks about her planet having an orange sky yeah. doesn't she ah yes i'm trying to yeah i was trying to remember because i yeah because i get mixed up between the pilot episode and the and unearthly child as televised and what did or didn't happen because that just pinpointed them to coming from a certain time didn't it i think the pilot Another world, maybe, but I, I'd have to look at the mm, transcript yeah. to be sure. So, one other thing that I that I came across in in this was that the second episode, Desperate Measures, is really highly rated. It has thirteen million viewers, and it apparently was in the top ten of uh, TV programs for that week, which was you know quite an unusual occurrence in the in in that era. So it's interesting. So so you think to yourself, well. Dalek invasion of Earth, you know, there's there's people got excited about Daleks and they've kept watching it into the rescue, but it's but it's not episode one of the rescue that's the highest the highest rated. It's episode two. So they've you know they've, they've seen episode one and they've been enjoyed it well enough to come back for episode two along with some of their mates. So yeah, I mean, I, I guess 1965 viewing public thought it was pretty good. Yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult to. You know, there are all sorts of things that can factor into f- figures like that. Um, yeah. So Dalek Invasion of Earth is being shown over Christmas and then yeah. the rescue's being, the, the, the rescue begins kind of in New Year. So are people busy those weekends? Mm. And the second episode is when none of those Christmas New Year commitments get in the way. And maybe the, maybe the weather's not great and people are staying in. <laughs> There's quite a lot of correspondence of, of this sort, this kind of debate within the BBC, not about Doctor Who, but about channels. You know, how do you yeah. know why an episode has, has done well? Um, what they tend to do rather than look at particular episodes is look at trends. And the trends analysis is basically that Doctor Who has come back for season two with high figures for Planet of Giants, kind of in anticipation of the Daleks, and they have stayed high. They have they have mm. remained consistent and have gone up. That is the big mark of a successful show. Mm. You see it in magazines as well. You know, the idea is that you you have a big launch, does very well, and then your audience tapers off. And you attempt to win, win them back. So anything that starts well and then builds upwards is a big success. So this is a hit show. It's, you know, fluctuations week by week can lead you astray. It's the it's the overall analysis that to keep an eye on. But yeah, they knew it was doing well. Mm. It's interesting because it's also, I just had a quick flip around on, on Wikipedia and assume that those are accurately quoted because it's not only getting high... High, you know, very high ratings, but it's also got a pretty high appreciation index for the time, like fifty-seven, fifty-nine. It's in the same same league as Dalek Invasion of Earth in that regard. And um, ironically, it's the Romans. Much, you know, much loved fan favorite, the Romans starts off rating still pretty highly, but that's where the appreciation index goes off a goes off a cliff. The general feeling in the Doctor Who 
production team and this is you know you can see this in their their own correspondence and stuff that survives at the written archive center in Cavisham. their general feeling is sci-fi stories with monsters are the ones that do well and that when you do historical stories the the audience just tapers there's audience research where they go out and talk to basically people on the doorstep and the anecdotes the anecdotes are repeated over and over again oh i found the historical one boring when are they going to get into space again do we know that they've spotted that already yeah Yeah. but they carry on (laughs) well yes but they're also attempting to do things with it Hmm. and they're they're adjusting the source you can definitely see dennis spooner attempting to do stuff with that so the chase and the time meddler are mixing up the history and the sci-fi yeah i mean it's 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 a while off yet but jerry davis and Innes Lloyd are kind of like, we just need to knock these historicals on the head. That you know, the trend has been clear for some time. If the lesson is being learned by Verity Lambert and Dennis Spooner, this it's possible that when they leave and John Wells comes in, that that learned lesson goes out the window and they they jump back on the historical train and have to learn it all over again. I think there's some very odd things going on in that handover. Yeah, uh, that's a that's a debate for another time. I think it is. It is, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, yeah. What? Why? Why have you made that choice? Why have you made that choice? Why have you made that choice? Is uh, yes, it's it's all a bit odd. We'll file that away for when they find the MythMakers and the Massacre, Richard, and yeah. we'll, we'll we'll carry on the discussion then. You're well, one, yeah. Well, so so perhaps perhaps slightly more on brand then. So so this is. David Whittaker's first freelance contribution. It's, a, it's presumably his first freelance piece of writing because it's, as you say, he actually starts it while he's still contracted to the BBC, although they can't say that. And then he goes on and fairly soon afterwards writes The Crusade. It's a, bit more, it's a bit more complicated than that. Go on then. Um, so he wrote The Edge of Destruction freelance as well. Okay. But since he began at the BBC in 1957, he wrote an awful lot of stuff freelance. He was very, very busy. So he was probably earning in his... Before he got Doctor Who, when he was a script editor in Light Entertainment and on the Sunday night play, he was probably earning about 1,800 quid as a salary. He had an allowance and was meeting it and kind of going over the top of his allowance to write another thousand pounds worth of material in his own time. So he was effectively adding to his salary by 50%. Yeah, yeah. That's a lot of writing. What happens in about October 1963, around the time he's commissioned to write what becomes The Edge of Destruction, is the Writers Guild... It wasn't called the Writers Guild at that point, I don't think. But but what is now the Writers Guild of Great Britain began to get very exercised about what they referred to as shopping down the corridor. Oh. Uh, script editors and story editors commissioning each other and it kind of being a closed shop. And that seems to be why David didn't write a longer story for the first year of Doctor Who. There was a, the, For a while it looked like he was going to write a story about the Spanish Armada. He may have earmarked the French Revolution story for himself as well he couldn't do that and all his writing outside of Doctor Who outside of his staff job stops as well he in the period he's on story editor of Doctor Who he gets one comedy sketch on TV that's it which is compared to what he was doing the year before is Mm. where he wrote seven episodes of compact and sketches and songs and whatever else Mm. So I think that's partly why he leaves because it's mm. he can't he, he can't take up these opportunities he's being offered, and what he does is he is he then goes off and does the novelization of the Daleks and he does the Dalek Annual. So he's still the creative output is still as extraordinary and prolific, but it's not working in television. Once he's he he delivers the rescue, as I say before he leaves there's certainly paperwork saying that they had scripts before the end of october 64 he's commissioned on the 1st of november for that story retroactively and for the crusade and i think the crusade is the first story he writes outside the building so to speak okay and i think you can see a marked difference 
he's trying to do adult drama and yeah. quite and pushing the boundaries of what Doctor Who can be. And I think you can see that in the Crusade. There's a there's a you know there's some extraordinary stuff in the Crusade for for what's a yeah. family show, and I think that's him trying to escape the shadow of Doctor Who. And you can compare the Crusade to the stuff he's doing for he he wrote two episodes of a series called Undermined for uh, Robert Banks Stewart, and there's a similar kind of thing of trying to push what you can do in drama there and trying to escape the shadow of kids' telly. And then, it, and then after that, it's a while before he comes back to the fold. A year or so, isn't it? Something like that. Yeah. So, so after the crusade, he he novelizes the crusade. Yeah. But he's pitched something. He's got a story called the New Armada, which um, Jerry Davis finally rejects in January 1966, and says, "We don't really want to do stories like this anymore. Can, can you come in and have a chat?" But he's busy on other stuff. He's working on the Dalek yeah. movie. He's working on other movies. He's working on telly for ITV. And I think he's trying to... My suspicion is he was trying to get away from Doctor Who and the BBC and establish himself. And then just when he was out, they dragged him back in. Yeah, I think I think by, by uh, the time of Power of the Daleks, things are very different for him, but also for the show. And they are keen to have a reliable you know pair of hands come in to oversee that transition and they get chris barry back in as director and they get david as the writer you can kind of see them kind of going we need this to be handled right mm-hmm. okay no so, i mean that's that's fascinating go on paul you're about to say something. well i was just going to say as far as we can go without getting too off topic for this podcast but if, yeah, if yeah. anybody doesn't know the story what happens to david whittaker in his last years on doctor who and beyond then do rush off and watch the uh, documentary where was it <laughs> what was it on again and and, and 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 buy simon's book and the book yes i oh, forget <laughs> yes. the documentary burn your dvds <laughs> buy the book yes there's a, there's a, a documentary looking for david yep. made by chris chapman and toby haydick on which mm. i was their kind of assistant which is on the season two yep. set oh of course that's where it was yes mm. so i mean everyone has seen it but if you haven't I mean, you won't you won't see it coming. It's it's extraordinary and horrific. Oh, bless you! But I, all, not, all I was going to say is, I think the rest not your documentary. So I mean, <laughs> the horrific. The, the second adjective was <laughs> yes. All I was going to say is, I think the rescue then is the sort of closing bit of David Whittaker. It's it, he he delivers the you know he certainly worked on the final scene in Dalek Invasion of Earth. We can see what the, the, the script survived where we can see what Terry Nation wrote. We can see how David Whittaker polished that final speech from William Hartnell. It, it, Terry Nation wrote what was much more uh, dialogue between the Doctor and Susan. David Whittaker makes it much more a speech from the Doctor, a much more heroic kind right. of speech and really lays into it. And then the cast kind of polish that and take out it's a bit overwrought in David's version and the cast cut some of it and make it sing. I mean, that scene is beautiful. But before he leaves the office, David Whittaker delivers the rescue and that is him leaving the show in rude health to continue. And so the rescue is his kind of parting shot as the story editor, I would say, basically setting it up to run and run and run. Yeah. Good job. I mean, it is only two episodes, but my I was startled actually how quickly it zipped through as, as I was watching it. I mean, you know, even some of those individual 25-minute episodes from this era can feel quite slow, and this isn't one of those. Both of the episodes, to me anyway, as I was watching them, seemed like they were, they were faster than I was expecting them to go. Well, you know, it's a really, it's the length of an episode of Doctor Who now. So it feels kind of it. It does a story in that, yeah. And it has a monster, and it has an alien landscape, and it has, you know, some plot twists and stuff. So it, yeah, it's got something of modern Doctor Who about it. I think. Mm. Anything else that anyone has got that they were desperate to say about this story? No, but can I just say, if it's not too off topic, how interesting it is that we are discussing. Maureen O'Brien's first story as Vicky, the week where she's just returned to the role oh, true. after 58 years. Mm. It does strike me that if, this, if, um, if that Tales from the TARDIS thing had been on telly rather than 
on an iPlayer should have should have snatched William Russell's record off him. Depending on yeah, how the, yeah. the good people at Guinness <laughs> do their calculations, she may not have done. But she's runner up anyway, my <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 also I mean, I, I saw people kind of criticizing Tales of the TARDIS because of the sort of emotional tone of it all. And yet you watch the rescue and go, that was there from the beginning. <laughs> you know, the, do- the doctor takes Vicky's hand. Vicky gets a great, a great speech about her background. You know, what happened to her? And the camera sort of closes in on her and gets a gets a really good wide shot and stuff. I was, I was kind of like that right there. That's, you know, that's the same kind of emotional depth of st- stuff. I Yeah, I, I, I think it's been there. I think I think that's actually quite consistent. I think there are other periods of Doctor Who where mm. that doesn't happen. We're not meaning to criticize at all, but but the fifth doctor and Tegan finally get to have a conversation about the trauma of the loss of Adric and you kind of go, "Yeah, you didn't do that in time flight, did you?" you know, <laughs> that... <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. No. She's a remarkably thinking about this now. She's a remarkably naturalistic performer as well, Maureen O'Brien. You know, when you, mm. I mean, most of these are, are stage actors. I mean, she's a stage actor too, but nonetheless, she doesn't come across as a stage actor in a TV studio. She comes across, you know, kind of like a, a modern TV actor. Mm. Yeah, she's really good, really good. Yeah, and you know, and what a difficult, you know, people talk about Troughton coming in and being the first new Doctor. She's got to be the first new companion, and it's very well established. Not only is it very well established, but she's replacing the Doctor's granddaughter. So it's a big ask to make that relationship work. And it totally does. By the end of episode two, you're totally, I, you know, mm. it's it's a very warm, you know, there, there's a lovely bit where they te- they hold hands for the first time. And it's just, it's, yeah, I, to- I totally buy it. Mm. Great. Before we start talking about the other one, do you want sort of two minute break? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, see you shortly. Five, four, three, two, one. Yeah. And it always looks utterly implausible because everyone's clapping at different times on the video, but somehow it, it comes together, yep. sort somehow of. It works. He spins podcast gold out of this sow's ear of a, of a clap. Do you want to start the, um, do you want to start the recording? Oh, that's a good point. You see, that this is also why I have other people on the thing, because they actually know what I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> have you already done a podcast with him, with his character, Simon, or did you just meet in person? Uh, we met in person. Right. Very good. I can't help feeling that, that you actually introduced us, Paul, at, at um, Missing Be- Believed White. Well, literally like in that. person. Oh, yeah, yeah, I think Yeah, so. I remember it so well. It was a beautiful, beautiful <laughs> moment. Mm. Or possibly one of the Doctor Who screenings. It's something yeah, of that sort. Yeah, it might have been that. What a nice man I am. Talking of the Fitzroy Tavern, by the way, oh, God. we were oh, talking yeah. about whether we ought to try to get a, try and do something for the anniversary, try to get, try to actually get people together, try and inject some, you know, gather some, get some people to come along for who haven't been there for ages and try and get some new blood and well, so put, on. Cy can be on top of that. He's, he's had great success yeah. in this arena before. He's very persuasive. Mm. No, no, seriously. Why not? <laughs> so it's the only person who turned up. If we don't do it uh, this so year, it's... this November, when ever? Well, exactly. So we were thinking about the, ironically, the twenty second rather than the twenty third, despite twenty third being a Thursday, right. just because of That's... people wanting to um, potentially stay home and watch whatever goodies will be on the telly on the twenty third. And uh... Uh, have have they heard about the iPlayer? Sorry. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're just uh, yeah you never know what they might throw at us though so yeah yeah fair enough possibly fair enough. but yes I'm about to uh, I need to give them a call and then spread the word so I've only just seen that you wanted me to drop the line but I, I did my own I came up with my own solution to the repetition yeah winging it like Peter Davison <laughs> <laughs> just like it it was like he was in the room I mean I'm, well, I'm so used to Big Finish where, we're, where immediately it'd be like right should we have another go at that 
Can we do that again? Well, we used we used to we we used to have another go at that. And you wait till Lisa says that's the one, don't we? Yeah. And then we yeah. know. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you, and and I mean, look, I mean, we could have another go at it if if anyone feels like you know now that they've get, had a crack at it. Yeah. Do you think we get a bit more pace in there? You can tighten it up in the edit, can't you, Rich? Yeah. But you're right. I suppose if we, if, if we have if we have two goes at everything, then if something has gone horribly wrong, then I can always go to the other one. Yeah. You also have to pretend <laughs> that you're not recording the first one because some actors get really shirty about it. Right. But, um, okay. Like that now, but for future reference. Some actors. Okay. Cool, hey? Some actors. <laughs> okay. I think we're all set, and just in time. Our guests are logging in now. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> I can completely balls it up now because I somehow managed to lose my window with the script on it, which is not great. Ah, oh, there it is. There it is. Right. You mean you haven't learnt it? <laughs> Didn't have time for rehearsals. Yeah. Was, uh, too busy doing the blogging. Uh, should we just go... From the top. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> should we go from the top, loves? Yeah. <laughs> Guess plural. Does the budget stretch to that? I see what you did there, yeah. Because we don't actually have a budget. Yes. <clears throat> if I wasn't coughing. Here's one of them. Hello everyone. No, sorry. No, no, no. Here's one of them. <laughs> I'm getting worse. Keep <laughs> <laughs> going. Is that the one, Paul? That's the one. Yeah, just take out <laughs> all the all the longers and it will be and it'll be brilliant. Yeah. No, the performances were all there. Great. <clears throat> and, and and the coughs. Fantastic. <clears throat> And with us this time, we have writer Simon Guerrier, oh. well known for writing works. Hmm? Oh, sorry, that was an ooh, was I it? I was going to do an ooh, but I, I lost confidence <laughs> very early in it. <laughs> ooh. 